Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On Tuesday, June 20th, a federal jury convicted three individuals of interstate stalking of Chinese nationals in connection with China's Operation Fox Hunt and found two defendants guilty of acting or conspiring to act on behalf of the PRC without prior notification of the Attorney General. You might recall that in February, Mike Gallagher, the Wisconsin Republican congressman who chairs the House Select Committee on U.S. competition with the Chinese Communist Party staged a rally in front of a building which he said was part of a Chinese program of transnational repression. So then in April, the DOJ announced that two individuals had been arrested for operating just such a police station and for destroying evidence and obstructing justice in the case. Any casual news consumer, I think, could be forgiven for seeing all of this as part of the same basic story a Chinese party state whose security services have gone extraterritorial. Uh, the specter of Chinese transnational repression has loomed up in the American consciousness quite a bit recently, fueled by reports, one in particular, uh, that have circulated throughout the first half of this year about Chinese police stations supposedly being operated in the U.S. and dozens of other countries. This idea that these police stations are part of China's long-arm repressive apparatus has even made it into Germany's recently announced China strategy, which includes, according to Reuters, that, quote, Germany is taking countermeasures on a national and European level against transnational repression, especially on the issue of Chinese overseas police stations. But are these all part of the same thing, these alleged police stations on the one hand, and the harassment and even the kidnapping of Chinese nationals overseas? whether political or religious dissidents or fugitive criminals or what have you, uh, on the other. So 
what are, in fact, these Chinese police stations. Joining me to help sort this out and to give a clearer picture of the real scope of transnational repression and the role, if any, of the overseas police stations is Jeremy Dahm. Jeremy was on the show not too long ago with the amazing Kendra Schaefer to talk about the draft regulations on generative AI. And now that those rules are no longer just drafts, uh, we have them. Maybe if we have time, I will ask him a bit about that again. But uh, listeners will know Jeremy, if not from his appearances on Seneca to talk about social credit and other things, then certainly from his invaluable China Law Translate website, which is just what it sounds like, translations of Chinese law replete with very authoritative and insightful commentary. Jeremy is a senior research scholar in law and senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Law Center, and he's an indefatigable debunker of nonsense about China. Uh, With some trepidation, he's taken on this whole uh, conflation of police stations and transnational repression issue, uh, but not, as you shall see, because he downplays the very real issues around intimidation and harassment of overseas Chinese, but just because there is a lot that's simply wrong in it. Jeremy Dahm, welcome back to Seneca. Great to see you. Thanks, Kaiser. Good to see you, too. And I'm glad you mentioned my uh, trepidation, because as you know, we've talked back and forth a bit. I have been reluctant to take on this topic, uh, and in no small part due to two main reasons. You know, One is the public sentiment environment out there is just so bad right now. Yeah, It used to be that if you said something sort of positive about China, then people would start yelling at you about being an umau or, or a, a, a panda hugger or something. Now it's if you deny something bad that was said about China. Anything short of a full adversarial stance towards China seems to bring out the worst in people. And you know, my motto, I always love your motto of, of reporting on China without fear or favor. Um, you know, my version of it is when a reporter once asked me, are you pro or anti-China? And I just had to answer, no. Uh, (laughs) Right, right. You know, I I don't think we have to be, but we really we are seeing that polarization where you're asked to take a camp, and it's been that way for a while. Um, But but you know, the other reason why I've been a little nervous about talking about this topic is you know my expertise is Chinese domestic law, right? Um, and, And this is a little outside of it. I'm not an investigative reporter. I haven't traveled to any of these sites that were listed. But I have worked with police in China. I have talked to reporters who visited some of these centers. And I began to see this big disconnect between what was being reported about these overseas Chinese secret police stations and what even the documents being cited to support those statements were saying. Um, and I am capable of reading those documents and understanding them. That's what I do spend my time doing. So I did write on this, and and I think it's become enough of an issue that it is worth talking about. Yeah, you know, I mean, you've made some some public forays into the conversation already, so you've made your bed. Now I'm going to make you lie. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Like, for example, uh, uh, when those charges were brought against the two individuals in April over their failure to register as foreign agents under mm-hmm. FARA, and for you know obstruction of justice charges because you know they did delete and destroy documents. You noted the. Um, publicly, I mean, this is on Twitter, a, a pretty stark yeah. contrast between, on the one hand, the public-facing press release that the DOJ put out or the FBI put out and the actual charges. Can you, can you lay out what that disparity is and explain why you were concerned by that that disparity between the charging document and the actual statements? Yeah, you're right. I, t- I took note of the disparity, and I think I do so um, 
because it's a good example of the sort of disconnect in the, what we're seeing, where there's a real distinction between a legal case that's proceeding, which is totally appropriate and should be proceeding, and a ma- more mainstream media public opinion battle that's happening alongside it. And it really felt like you could see it in the DOJ's press release versus in the actual criminal complaint. Right. So, you know, in, in the press release that they had accompanying it, you see lines, they're quoting people, um, uh, uh, you know, officials in the U.S. government, they're saying things like the secret physical presence that was established in New York City, uh, secret illegal pres- police station on U.S. soil. They're really emphasizing that there's a bigger threat somehow in this office having been a, a secret police station, as they like to say. Whereas if you look at the charges, what we have are one, you know, no one's actually charged so much with running a secret police station so much as that the secret police station is one example of the defendants uh, acting as agents for uh, the government of of China um, under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And you see that a lot of the other activity that they did on behalf of the Chinese government, in fact, the more controversial activity of organizing counter-protests to Falun Gong protests in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, happened before the station. And, you know, it may be that the people who are involved with this station are also the people who are involved, and we can talk about whether it matters then that there's a misrepresentation. But the stations themselves are so far from what's being discussed in mainstream media of a functioning law enforcement station, a po- actual policing by China uh, in foreign jurisdiction. So what were they doing, in fact? What is the function of these so-called police stations? Well, you know, again, I haven't been to them. So what I can say is, one, what the Chinese media talks about uh, talks about them, and two, what appears in things like indictments and in investigations by foreign governments of them. Um, and that actually gives us a pretty clear idea of what they're actually doing. Um, okay. First, let me just say, you know, they're described often as secret illegal police stations. They're not secret. Uh, they were advertised. Uh, the single report that brought everyone's attention to this from Safeguard Defenders relied on sources that were all essentially press releases by local governments in China's uh, public security authorities, letting people know these existed. They were often labeled with signs out front. And as the criminal complaint from the New York case shows, people were given awards and had opening ceremonies. So they're not secret. Are they illegal? Well, there's not a crime of having a of a foreign police station because it's too weird a situation, maybe. Um, but being a foreign agent, an unregistered foreign agent, absolutely is something that they can be charged with. Um, whether mm-hmm. that's the police station or or the individuals is a separate question. Are they police stations? No, I don't think it's fair to say that by anyone's common understanding of what a police station is, that that this is what they are. And uh, the reason I say that is, one, in part, they seem largely to be doing what the Chinese government has said they were doing. Which is? Which is uh, helping Chinese citizens abroad file certain paperwork, including for driver's license. Right, right. People might not know who are familiar with China, but the China public security offices do more than law enforcement or policing in the traditional sense. And they also have a lot of administrative and filing sorts of duties. Um, and this seems to be that. But more importantly, they were way stations, if anything. They had teleconferencing equipment with all the work uh, that was even of that administrative nature seems to have been being done back in China. 
So even in the cases where they were seen to be most involved in something like law enforcement, it was that somebody went to one of them to talk on a video conference to police back in China. I see. I see. So that doesn't sound so terribly nefarious. You mentioned just now a report by Safeguard Defenders. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, So international attention to the issue of these Chinese police stations abroad, I think it's fair to say, came directly from that report, which was issued in December. Now, Safeguard Defenders uh, is really the successor organization to China Action, which was a human rights-focused NGO, an unofficial or unregistered NGO, founded in 2009, I believe, by a Swedish guy by the name of Peter Dahlin, who I think many of our listeners will be familiar with. He was friends with you know many of my friends. He was expelled and forced to do one of those really unseemly kind of wearing the orange jumpsuit televised confessions. Um, and so I think a lot of listeners will remember that. The report, and I don't know whether Peter Dolan himself had a hand in writing it, was called 110 Overseas or 110 Overseas, Chinese Transnational Policing Gone Wild. And it alleged that uh, overseas police stations played a part in efforts to, to repatriate uh, by various means Chinese nationals who were wanted by by China's law enforcement agencies. So let's not dwell on this too much, but can you talk a little bit about what was wrong with that initial report? Because you were somebody who, who wrote to them, you got in touch with them, you wrote about this and uh, what they subsequently corrected and, and didn't. Yeah, I, I mean, bluntly, it's it's a sloppy report. Uh, this, is, this is C-plus work. And I didn't want to draw too much attention to that because I do think they're raising important issues. Uh, And a lot of the report, contrary to, I'm sure, many of the media outlets that have covered it, the report is not actually devoted in in great detail to these overseas police stations. They're one small part of it, most of which is about various tactics of persuading people to return to China, overseas fugitives and the like. Um, That has confused a number of media outlets, some even saying that the police stations were directly involved in that when the connection is actually much, much more tenuous. And I don't want to harp, like you said, on, on the quality of, of the Safeguard Defenders report. I've written about that in the past. They clearly didn't understand everything they were reading um, and were using Google Translate to read some of their sources. I don't think it was Peter himself who authored it, but but some of the staff of their NGO. But to me, what's most shocking about it is that really a single source drove this entire international news story. And you'll see that almost everyone reports back to them without having sort of verified what that is that is written in this report. And the media companies feel comfortable doing this because they're not reporting on the truth of it. They're just saying this is what Safeguard Defenders said. And, right. and that is true. Safeguard Defenders said this. But given the inflammatory nature of the story and how tense things are in international relations, one would ask for a little bit more. And then we get the problem that I sort of alluded to a second ago, which is, you know, Safeguard Defenders, which is an organization with a a, a mission to be critical of China, uh, which is fine, of course. They take the worst plausible interpretation of these documents that they're reading. So they leave themselves fudge room, presented in a way that they could say, well, technically what I said is true because I put this maybe in here and they, they try and spit it. Then the media reads the Safeguard Defenders report and does the same sort of tactic, but from the report of they try to present those findings in the worst way that they can. 
and it gets in more and more exaggerated as it goes on. Yeah, not surprisingly. I've seen that happen before with other things. Um, but, you know, there's some there there, right? I mean, there is something that they're talking about. Uh, in fact, in the Safeguard Defenders report, they write about how, you know, the Chinese media itself had boasted of 230,000 people who had returned to China. Uh, but my understanding of that was that these people were mostly these kind of telefraudster types who've been, you know, plaguing places like like Sinukville and uh, places like around Southeast Asia or, you know, in, in the Middle East, like in Dubai, where, you know, they're, they're sending me apparently all these texts that just say random things to try to bait me into a conversation. I'm sure you get these too. Of course. It's terribly annoying. Yeah. Uh, like you say, there is some there there. And that's, you know, part of my reluctance to talk about this. I mean, one, international intimidation and harassment of dissidents and normal street criminals that are overseas is real. Um, yeah. and, I, and I never want to downplay that, that story. Um, that part is real. And, uh, you know, the numbers you cite, the 230,000, that, that, you know, that number somewhat inflated because it refers to all efforts at, at repatriation of what they call persuasion to return in the reports, which by right. and large is done by sort of blanket announcements rather than individualized contact. So they'll put out a thing that if you come in now and turn yourself in, you know, you'll get a more lenient sentence. If you come in later and we have to catch you, then you're going to get a heavier sentence. And people who turn themselves in during that uh, count into those numbers, as do many people who are being overseas fraudsters, like you were mentioning, who came back during COVID because they would have rather to be in China than wherever they were um, <laughs> for the pandemic. Um, so, so, you know, th that number includes a lot and it, it certainly isn't directly tied to these uh, police stations. So, I mean, the, another one of the things that happens when the story gets into the media is, and you've pointed this out, there's this tendency to see things that are done actually at a relatively local, low level of law enforcement uh, to, to interpret those somehow as national policy. So uh, in your piece uh, that you wrote in uh, China Law Translate from December, if I recall correctly, you made the analogy to like some school district in Texas banning LGBTQ books and then somebody reporting on it saying the U.S. bans LGBTQ books. Uh, I mean, I've seen this happen in China all the time. I mean, yeah. I, I, the example I always used was, um, yeah, like uh, some, again, a school district bans the teaching of evolution and, and it's somehow reported as the U.S. bans teaching of evolution. But yeah, this happens a lot in China. Maybe you could spell out what, if anything, in these policies actually is national or is being carried on by you know, central authority. Yeah, it's one of the things that first struck me as odd about the story. I mean, like I said, there's no question that China has done some overseas harassment in the name of law enforcement, including having people physically travel to other countries um, to leave messages, meet with people, etc. But the idea that they would establish a physical presence, a physical office for the purpose of doing that, when it would clearly be so controversial to the American public and the American government, as well as the, many of the European countries and, and Africa and South America all over the world that they'd done this and that they would proceed by doing this incredibly controversial thing by having municipal city government public security offices do it. Uh, that just doesn't make sense. It's too big a move. Right. Local level governments in China, contrary to what some people might think, do have a lot of discretion. 
in the way they implement the commands that come from on high. And they're sort of used as laboratories for experimenting with new policies and new procedures. And then their experiences get summarized and the good ones get carried forward into uh, central government rules. But this is something that, you know, my guess is that the central government is none too happy about. Uh, and in fact, one of the people that's named in the criminal complaint for the New York case, uh, you know, I don't know why, but they have been removed from their position. One of the people who was credited with creating the program in Fuzhou. Interesting. So I want to I want to keep keep at this. I mean, so have you seen any evidence at all to link these these actual physical presences with transnational repression in some way or another with repatriation of, of, of criminals or anything like that? Is there any evidence to suggest? It's pretty minimal, but I wouldn't say nil. You know, there are some cases where the people, once they, they've set up these stations, have then been asked to locate somebody uh, who's in that country. So they've been a contact point or even to set up a video conferencing call. One guy bragged that he'd been asked to try and persuade someone to return. But they're not law enforcement actions, really. But they might be harassment actions. So the, yeah. the question is, you know, I've said that I think the, they play, at worst, a minimal role in this international harassment, intimidation, et cetera. And the reason I say that is I don't think closing all of the stations down would stop the harassment or intimidation. So we're barking up the wrong tree, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that these are something of a distraction. Uh, you know, I've said that they're not a key part of the overseas harassment and intimidation because I think that closing all of these wouldn't stop it. And essentially, any functions that they're playing a role of in that could be replaced just by a citizen with a cell phone. Once security, public security or state security in China has a contact or an asset of any kind somewhere, then yes, it might start to use that for other purposes. So they might be a danger in that sense. But saying that these are physical presences set up for the purpose of intimidation and surveillance doesn't seem to be the case. Even in the criminal complaint, you see that it says what was present at the, at the, when the FBI raided the uh, site seemed to be consistent with helping people apply for driver's license. The site seemed to be open for one hour a week on Thursdays, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 um, it, it doesn't seem like these were really that big a deal. So, so if they're this innocuous, I mean, should we just allow them to operate? Is that is that what you're arguing? Uh, I don't think there's a real threat from driver's license services, but like I said, people should investigate. And if there's a question of violations of a law like the Foreign Agents Registration Act then they should prosecute. That's up to each country to use their domestic laws to do. My fear is that by creating this threat out of a physical Chinese policing presence on the ground, that we're whipping up a frenzy. You know, the, the original Safeguard Defenders report published the addresses of these places. Um, right. a, 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 and, you know, Gallagher, you mentioned earlier, held a rally outside of people after they'd been charged with a crime certainly before they've been convicted of a crime, a rally outside of their offices pointing to it saying, the building behind me houses a secret p police station. This is more than a dog whistle in my mind. Yeah. You know, th th this is whipping people into a frenzy of hatred that might be direct. Uh, you know, I've had fear that we would see a Pizzagate sort of scenario where somebody who's seen these addresses or seen a rally like this would show up with a gun to fight off the Chinese invaders. 
Just for those of you who don't know that reference, that's uh, Comet Ping Pong, a guy from the great state of North Carolina where I reside, drove up to Virginia to Comet Ping Pong with, uh, I, I suppose it was an AR-15, and wouldn't wouldn't believe, you know believe before he was shown the basement that didn't exist, you know where that the satanic pedophiles were keeping the children. I think he fired a couple of shots in there, and yeah, so that's what you're worried about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, and from what you read in these statements about China's Ministry of Public Security has set up a physical presence in our city, it seems like that would not be an inappropriate response. In fact, one might be surprised that the FBI charging only two people involved in the one in New York then released them on bail. We have the frenzy again that is outstripping the actual threat. So while I don't want to say the threat zero because these people have been involved in other activities outside of the police stations, the same people. So you should maybe be keeping an eye on them. But I think using rule of law, not public opinion, having cases like this one or other cases that have recently been filed, like uh, the, the recent Fox Hunt case you mentioned. And uh, I think there was one in Boston as well about overseas intimidation and harassment. Uh, there's been one in California. Finding using our law and our courts and due process to investigate these situations rather than creating this public opinion narrative that's running us alongside and outrunning the criminal process that, that is whipping people up into a frenzy. Here, here. But I mean, it's pretty easy for me to imagine how somebody might respond to you know to these concerns about tarring Chinese in America or tarring American Chinese with this fifth columnist brush, which is, you know, what we're talking about here, uh, they might say, and, and I think many honestly believe this, that what they're doing is really intended precisely to to protect Chinese in America from the long arm of the party state, you know, that, that this is all in the interest of Chinese in America, in America who are being, you know, uh, harassed, whose families are being threatened or, or where there's implied threats, that sort of thing. So, you know, when you find fault in the overseas police station narrative, you're effectively enabling transnational repression, aren't you, Jeremy Dahm? Uh, uh, so I, how would you respond yeah. to that? I mean, this is the dilemma that we have, is that, that yeah. everyone thinks they're the hero of this story. Uh, and you, you know, you've seen it in my reluctance to say anything because it's been so intertangled with the idea of this harassment, which of course I don't support, that, that it's inextricable. But at the same time, I do worry about, you know, both sides of that of that argument. Um, I've seen major news outlets in the U.S. Uh, saying one that Chinese Americans aren't sufficiently assimilated um, and need to assimilate more. Um, both of parts of which I think are wrong. And uh, you also have China not helping the matter by arguing that the sons and daughters of China spread around the world should look upon China with pride and creating the idea that there is a political connection between ethnically Chinese people and, and, and China. It's a complicated matter and, and it's hard to deal with, but I don't think we want to get to a position where we're starting to view, and perhaps we've already passed this position, where everyone of Chinese or even East Asian descent is suddenly looked upon as a potential spy of, of the Communist Party. Yeah. So a lot of people know your work in, in taking on the, the mythology around the social credit system. And, you know, you kind of, I think, did quite a bit to, to explode this idea 
that there was this single number assigned to all Chinese citizens and that their, you know, political misbehavior or their behavior on social media was was going to, you know, give them this ranking. You you did a lot to, to counter that. And I think that it changed the media narrative. Or I think that it contributed mightily to the changing of the media. I don't see it, as, you know, used as often by responsible media. Do you find you're getting traction on this story with media as well? Because I know you've engaged with quite a few media outlets on this. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to people about this. You know, I, I think you're overly optimistic about the social credit story. And my concern with both of these stories is that you see not just people getting it wrong, but super confident in their wrong narrative. People right. are 100% certain that there is a score in China to the point where when I explain what social credit is, rather than people saying, oh, well, it looks like I'm thinking of a slightly different thing, or they say, no, you're wrong. You know, they, you know that, that, that you've been bought out. <laughs> you've, been, you've been incorporated. Um, and uh, I think it's the same with this overseas police stations thing. People are going to hear me and they're going to say, well, there's no distinction there. You're saying international harassment's real. Well, but the stations are. But even if it's some of the same people that overlap, it's different. Not everyone in these stations that are often based in real estate agencies, restaurants, community centers, and business associations are involved in this stuff, and you're labeling them all as spies. What troubles me most about this, as with social credit, is that certainty, that 100% certainty in a wrong narrative, and the inability or unwillingness, maybe, of media and government to go dig up the primary sources, to go take a look at what's being cited as the basis for this. I mean, calling these secret police stations when your knowledge of them is based on a press release, uh, you know, how can that not cause more cognitive dissonance? Exactly. I've got another one for you uh, if you want to take it on next. I mean, th this business about United Front Work Department's influences over Vancouver local elections. Uh, you got to check this out. I don't know if you saw the time story, but it was shot so full of holes. It was unbelievable. I, you know, I, I haven't followed it closely. I've seen, I've seen bits of it. I, I will say this about both overseas policing and United Front work generally, because uh, it is involved in helping make some of the connections to United Front work departments. It's one of these things that, yes, there's some there there, as you said, you know, there's there's some meat there. And this is maybe something that people should look at. But we as people who uh, are, are wanting to be critical of it tend to ascribe these supernatural powers to the Chinese police and United Front Work groups. The idea that there could be a police station set up or, you know, it, it's the same thing you see with people who are paranoid about U.S. government saying about the CIA. Uh, that there's or the this NED. Exactly. This this inhuman ability to carry out operations that just on a surface level doesn't really make sense. Not to say there's no involvement and no problem at all, but, but you can see it rising into a conspiracy theory. And it, it is a very othering kind of thing to start us ascribing this not quite human, almost mystical, magical power to these agencies. <laughs> Man. So the, this, the Safeguard Defenders report actually talked about 110 police stations abroad. I mentioned how, you know, Germany has, has, has you know, I've seen the Netherlands investigating uh, different countries in Africa actually supposedly alarmed at this and, and investigating. 
Are you aware of other governments who have brought cases against these so-called police stations or have otherwise put pressure on them to shut down their operation? Yeah, a, a lot of them have shut down once investigations started. I should say also that while the Safeguard Defenders does now list over 100 of these stations, uh, the the 110 is the police emergency number that they're re- referencing. Right, no, I got that. I got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just because you said 110, I want to make sure. Um, but they have said it's over, over 100 uh, uh, of these out there. But yeah, like the UK did its investigation and revealed that they found no illegal activity. They don't have a foreign agency law, which I hear they just passed and, and might be coming in their new National Security Act. And a lot of countries don't have that. So that offense wouldn't be there, which is what the US has charged uh, these defendants with. Um, and to my knowledge, the US is the only one that's actually had a criminal case initiated. So Jeremy, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, provide cover for you or anything here. But I think it is important that we do talk about the actual problem when it comes to the way Chinese law enforcement, local or otherwise, you know, has tried to compel the return of, of, of alleged criminals. So you touch on the issue of unjust course of tactics being taken against the property or even families of overseas criminal suspects in some of your writings. So maybe let's let's break out some of those tactics in more detail and, and the extent to which they might actually violate not just U.S. law, but even China's own domestic laws, which is something that you are an expert on. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, this is a topic worth looking at. And I'm glad that there is some attention, even with this hyped up narrative of police stations. Um, Intimidation, you know, I break it into two types in my head. I mean, one is by law enforcement using intimidation, threatening family that's back in China, um, threatening assets that are back in China in order to get people to return. Or even just letting it be known that you're still being watched while you're overseas is uh, intimidation enough. Um, they could well violate uh, local jurisdictions, stalking laws, harassment laws, intimidation laws, and those should be pursued. And I break it into two parts. I would say one is law enforcement. The other is, I think, sometimes it is just super patriots, uh, Chinese citizens who are overseas who think they're defending their homeland um, you know, without being directly employed or acting as agents for the far government. And I think the one, you know, we've seen that with some student groups where uh, I think there was one in Berkeley, somewhere in California, that a, a student was harassing another student who had attended a Taiwan independence rally. Um, and they were charged and they should be charged. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, for sure. <laughs> you know, um, I, but I think that's exactly right. What we see is that it, this gets focused attention on because it has this connection to China. Where, where, whereas a strictly domestic case might not, but but there is a difference between state action, of course, and and non-state action. Yeah. Um, but my thought is that if domestic law, t- if domestic law decides to really take an action in stopping cyber violence, you know, online bullying and threats and things like this, really takes a stance against stalking and intimidation, um, that would be great. Not trying to phrase it as. Chinese diaspora becoming agents. All right, Jeremy, I wanted to, since we do have a little bit of time, I wanted to get some comments on the main differences between, oh, this is very much switching gears here, but on the main differences between the draft regulations on generative AI. Generative AI, just to remind everyone, is you know kind of large language models like ChatGPT. It's things like uh, MidJourney or, or, or Dolly, these you know, AI-powered image generators. Uh, it's music generation, anything like that. Um, 
so between the the draft regulations that you and Kendra talked about just a few weeks ago on the show and the surprisingly quickly rolled out final regulations. So what has changed and, and what stood out or, or surprised you? Yeah, I I think they're a lot less strict than the draft had been. You anticipated that, though. Uh, yeah, I, I think credit mainly goes to Matt Sheehan for, for, for seeing that it was going to go in that direction. But they weren't workable. So 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 we knew that they were going to have to give. Um, unfortunately, sometimes unworkable law does get put into effect. But I'm glad that they, they backed down on, on some of the points. What's interesting to me is that they did so sort of explicitly in the name of allowing the development of this new industry. Um, right. So, so some things that they backed down on were requiring um, that service providers be able to guarantee the truth of generated content or of training data. Um, right. You know, not only is that unworkable, but it doesn't make sense. You know, I, I pointed out you, you put up an abstract piece of art and try and tell me is that true or not. It's true and it's a representation of the art, but is, you know, what does it mean for a painting to be true? Right. So, so they've gone down on that. They've added a few positive things like uh, discrimination, which was already a concern, preventing discrimination in the use of AI. They've added uh, health-based discrimination, assumedly a nod to persons with disabilities. Um, so, so, so generally speaking, that is the biggest change. The actual, uh, oh, I, I'm sorry, I've left out one of the biggest ones, which is that they shifted it to really focus only on public facing generative AI services mm, before it right. included also those being used in research and development, or that might just be, be used by a business internally for some other purpose. So it's really focusing in more on that misinformation and spread of AI content that might cause problems. Um, and, and that's much narrower in the range within that category, those providing such public uh, facing services, um, they're, obligations are largely the same in terms of what they have to watch out for in user conduct, but with a little bit reduction of the strictness with which they have to moderate. So the changes were made largely with the intention of preventing regs from hamstringing uh, the development of, of this very, very important technology. Were they successful doing that? Do you think that, that Chinese developers are still going to face significant impediments in developing generative AI that their, you know, Western, their, their U.S. or European counterparts wouldn't face? That's such a good question, you know, I and, and we're going to have to watch in a bit. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the research and development being lifted from a lot of the regulation is going to allow companies to be making products um, behind the scenes quite easily without running afoul of these rules, training smarter and smarter AIs they can use for things you know, uh, generative and non-generative things like the logistics ones that are used to make sure delivery drivers get the quickest routes to the largest number of people will continue to develop. I think the development future for me at this point is so unclear. I mean, I'm alarmed by the rapid development of AI. You know, I play with the tools yeah, yeah. and I, I, I see them as so game changing, um, that I can barely get my head around. It. Yeah. It's just, it's just insane. I, 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 th I spend an awful lot of time playing around with that stuff now. Yeah. And you have to assume that what we're using is already a generation behind, you know, the, 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 the growth of these is going to be exponential. Um, and I, I'm not sure we're ready to deal with it. 
That's right. That's right. Jeremy Dom, Dom the Debunker, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It has been a real pleasure, as always. Uh, for me as well. Thanks, Kaiser. And let's uh, move on to recommendations. I, I'm definitely curious to see what you've got for us. But first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is part of the China Project. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca or with any of the other shows in the network or, you know, with the China Project more generally, then the very best thing you can do to help us out is to subscribe to Access from the China Project. You get access to this show on Mondays, East Coast time, and, of course, to our Daily Dispatch newsletter. You, you can avoid the paywall on the uh, on the, the great stories we run on the website. So pitch in, help us out, and become a member. All right, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us? Uh, I'm going to go with a TV show this time. Uh, the the strangely named new effort from Boots Riley, uh, which is called I Am a Virgo. Oh, yeah. Have you seen, seen, it? It? Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's not it consistent before. straight through the whole way, but the, especially the first few episodes, you're really seeing something new. Um, oh, man, a, yeah. A, and it's a strange, weird show uh, with with a message to deliver. In fact, a character whose superpower is making messages delivered. Um, yeah. so, so, so it's a lot of fun, uh, and I would recommend that. I think we can spoil a little bit and say kind of what it's about. I mean, because, you know, right away, I, within 20 minutes of the first episode, you know what it's about. I mean, so it takes place in Oakland you know, in an African-American family, and <laughs> it involves the story of a 19-year-old boy. Is he 19? A giant, yeah. yeah. He's, yeah, but he's 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 thirteen feet tall. He is thirteen feet tall, and him standing tall does not go over well with the community necessarily. Um, so- and, and, but what's great is, I mean, the the that they they have him fall in with this really cool group of of these radical activists. Yeah, I I called it uh, do the right thing if made as a Marvel superhero movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's right. So yeah, it's it's Spike Jones meets the Marvel universe. Yeah, it's Spike, Spike Lee. Spike, Spike Lee. Spike Lee. Spike Lee. The Marvel Universe. Yeah. Not Spike uh, um, I mean, Boots Riley is no stranger to delving into issues of, of, of race in this country. His movie, uh, what's it called? Sorry to Disturb You is really good, too. Sorry to Bother You, maybe. Um, but, yeah. but, but, but really good stuff. Um, and I strongly recommend it. It's a lot of fun, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they, they quite stuck the ending, but it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah. All right. So my recommendation is, so I, I've got both my kids home for the summer. I, my daughter's actually home from college. My, my son's not headed off yet. Uh, but I'm always just struggling to, to find creative ways to feed them that just don't involve too much work. Uh, so there's a new go-to for me that just takes very, very little prep, and it tastes great. So I, I buy, like, a big old salmon filet or, like, you know, tuna steaks, something like that. It's ideally, obviously, sashimi-grade stuff, but, you know, you know people don't always go that we're out but anyway i set aside the nice thick parts for sashimi if it's you know salmon and then take the rest and just slice it up into little cubes you know centimeter cubes and then i um i make a sauce with a, a couple of tablespoons of mayonnaise and uh about a tablespoon of sriracha maybe a little more a little murin a little ponzu you don't I mean, murin is is good enough you don't need the ponzu some sugar like a couple of teaspoons of sugar and, and Sesame oil is really important. And then, like, the juice of a lemon, like one full lemon. This is for, like, a full, almost full st- st- salmon steak. And then uh, mix it all up really good. And uh, it's, you know, it's spicy tuna or spicy salmon. And, you know, so what we do 
is rather than just serve it in bowls or, or, or do rolls or anything like that, is we decided to do DIY. And the cheapest way to do that is I just get those, you know, uh, seaweed snacks that you can get from, again, from Costco, you know, these like Korean or Japanese seaweed snacks that are, you know, kind of t- nice toasted, dry, sealed, packed, uh, you know, uh, Japanese seaweed. And then, you know, through some, throw some furikake seasoning on that or t- toasted sesame seeds some chopped green onions and have some wasabi there. Everyone can just like, make their own little mini hand rolls. It takes like no effort and a really, really quick, quick cleanup. So that's my, <laughs> my feeding the family idea. It, for, it, for it sounds wasabi. very good. I, with my daughter, we're at the phase where if we can get her to eat things, we're happy. Uh, how old is she now? She is eight now. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 It's weird how finicky eating is a thing with kids. Like, I had a friend whose kid would only eat food that was white in color. Oh, yeah, I've known like, kids like that. I have known kids like that. Yeah, um, I'm, uh, yeah. She, my daughter, used to be a good eater. Then something clicked, and it just stopped. Uh, now, suddenly, now there's objections to everything. But uh, my son doesn't eat cilantro, which is just really weird. But I guess people have well, a cilantro. There's that gene, yeah, that some people yeah, taste it very yeah. differently. Yeah. Um, I, he claims I, to have it. 23andMe supports him. so okay. uh, I don't, I don't <laughs> well, you've, you've given your data away to that company, yeah? Uh, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's hope that they don't use it to transnationally repress me. Uh, well, they'll just sell it to the local police. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All good. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> take, take care. Take care. Yeah. Good to see you, Jeremy. All right, thanks, thanks for thanks having so me, much. guys. Bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at thechinaproj and be sure to check out all of the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.